Okay, turn with me in your copy of God's Word or in the bulletin to Acts chapter 23. We'll look at verses 12 through 35 this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, You have decreed all things that come to pass, and You do not just sit back and watch those decrees unfold as though You are cold or aloof or distant from Your people. Instead, You are warm and a loving and active Father, even to the point of sending Your own Son to take on human flesh and to die as a man and to be raised up as a man and a mediator and intercessor for us. And to send your spirit even to indwell us and to empower us for the callings that you have prepared for us. Forgive us, we pray, for our doubts. When our hearts might deny that you do work all things together for good for those who love you. Help us to remember, we pray, that every circumstance is a gift from you designed to maximize your glory. And may we be a people in this church who enjoy your providential will, because in whatever circumstance we are learning contentment, because we are learning to rest wholly in Christ. In his name we ask these things. Amen. Let's stand if if you are able for the reading of God's word. Acts 23, 12 through 35. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink, till they had killed Paul. There were more than forty who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand going and going inside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready, two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen, two hundred spearmen, and go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor, And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. 
and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, and on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked uh, what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. This is the reading of God's word. Praise God. What are God's works of providence? The Shorter Catechism asks that question. The answer is God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. We like to swim, of course, as a family, and the kids like to jump off the edge of the pool and into my arms. And when they're doing that, I want them to trust me, but they don't always trust me. Maybe that's partly because I like to push their comfort zone a little farther, step a little farther back, maybe let them go in deeper than they wanted. But generally, I want them to trust me that I got I got them. We are, as people, perfectly willing to accept that God is in control of all things. And I think especially as as Calvinists intellectually, we are enthusiastic to quote Sproul and say, if there's even one maverick molecule, we cannot have the slightest confidence that any promise God has ever made about the future will come to pass. But some of the time, or even maybe more of the time, our own complaining and skeptical hearts are maybe a little more nervous about that in the day-to-day than we like to admit. We may be a little bit hesitant to jump and trust in the arms of our Father. So in that way, maybe our, our intellectual theology is betrayed by our actions. A passage like this one helps us to see the providence and promises of God on display. And these events unfold in really an unusual and unexpected way. At least if I was writing the story of the victory of the gospel, that's not how I'd write it. But it unfolds perfectly according to God's all-encompassing plan. And so I hope that this passage will help us to lean just even a little bit more on God's wisdom as it unfolds before us, even when perhaps contrary to our own plans. So as we read this passage, we are in this larger story um, where Paul has gone to the temple to purify himself. He's taking a vow with these men and, and the Jews find him or the Jews from Ephesus find him and say he brought a a Gentile into the temple. He's defiling the temple and they're beating him and they're going to kill him. The tribune finds him and takes him into the barracks, strings him out for flogging. He realizes he's a a Roman citizen and so he takes him down to the council and Paul presents, he's going to present his case before the council again 
but they again act violently. The Jews react violently to his gospel because he's preaching a gospel that is a gospel to the Gentiles. And so after this, the, the tribune hauls him back to the fortress Antonia. And at this point, this is where we are in our passage that the Jews are not yet ready to drop it. They have more to deal with Paul. And so the next day, it says that 40 plus men make a plot to kill Paul. It says in 14, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. That's extreme. You can tell they're serious about this. And they even go so far as to bring in, bring in the, uh, the leaders of the temple. Now therefore you along with the council give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Um, these types of oaths were fairly common and it's not as though they're going to starve to death or that when they don't catch Paul, they're going to starve to death. Actually, they could just either be released by the leadership from their vow or, or go and take a, a sacrifice to the temple. So these men aren't going to starve, but you can tell how serious they are about this, that we're not going to eat or drink till Paul is dead. So examining this plot, we find that these men, these 40-plus fasters, are scheming against three things. First, they're scheming against God's law. They are overcome with a zeal for God's law as they understand God's law, and so much so that they're willing to break that very law, and not not just some obscure laws, but the Ten Commandments in order to execute their understanding of the law. The Sixth Commandment says, you shall not murder. And here they are getting ready to murder Paul. And no less, they accuse him of defiling the temple. They want to do this on the temple mount, shed human blood. They are also breaking, obviously, the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness. The Jewish law was very serious about uh, innocent until proven guilty. And on the, on the basis of two or three witnesses, somebody had to be tried. And, and even going farther, they're willing to lie to bear false witness to the tribune to accomplish this. And isn't it true that rarely, especially men who profess to know God, break the law of God because they outright don't like God's law. Instead, we tend to operate under the assumption that that our own will is God's will. We, we substitute our will as though it were God's law, and that's exactly what they're doing here. And of course, Paul, as we've seen over and over again, is vindicated as a follower of God's law. Well, the Jews are shown to be haters of God's law, just in the next passage, when Paul is giving his defense before Felix, he says about himself in 24.14, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets. So this, of course, fits into one of the broader apologetic themes before Theophilus, that Christianity is the proper fulfillment of the Old Testament law and the Old Testament covenants and Judaism. The second thing that they're scheming against, these these 40 plus, 
is God's system of justice. These men have to know the potential cost of this act. They're very serious about it. If their plan is to lure Paul down to the council again, they know Paul's going to be accompanied by probably the tribune, Roman soldiers. Um, if they, they take Paul and kill him right there, there's going to be violence, bloodshed. If not there, as a consequence later, they may die as a result. That's how much they care about this. So what we see here is that these 40-plus fasters are impatient. God's pace is not their pace. The magistrate, who is God's minister of justice, is not doing what they want. And even their own court, which in their system has legal rights of prosecution and execution, they're not finding something that they can pin on Paul, just like they couldn't pin anything on, on the prophet Daniel or Jesus. They, they had nothing to pin on him. And so they turn instead to, to this uh, vigilante justice. Which, of course, if you turn to vigilante justice, you're showing, I have nothing to pin on this person. I'm take, taking it into my own hands. So they're scheming against God's system of justice. Third, they're scheming against God's providence. God's providence. Agamelel, the Pharisee, spoke wisely and back in, if you remember, chapter 5, when he said, be careful how you proceed with this way because you might find yourself to be fighting against God. Ironically, that's exactly what they're doing here. They don't know that, Paul, that Jesus has come and spoken to Paul and said, Paul, you're going to go to Rome they're fighting against that very decree. They're fighting against God's providence. They're like a blind man flailing in the dark against an unseen enemy and wailing on him, not realizing that that enemy is actually God himself. And of course, the fists of men do not bruise God. Uh, Proverbs 21.30 says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Isaiah 8.10 Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. So you can just imagine here, God is, is wringing his hands in heaven. I, I told Paul he'd go to Rome, but these 40 plus fasters, they're, they, they're so sneaky. They're sneaking around my plan. Of course, that's not going to happen. God's Providence will come to pass. His providential care will not be thwarted. And we've seen this over and over and over again in Acts. We've also seen, though, that God's providence sometimes includes things like beatings and imprisonment and martyrdom. James, Stephen, they, that was all part of God's plan. So we should re be reminded that at this point, that, that, that God's providence extends also to us. Just as Jesus promised, not a hair will fall from your heads without your Father in heaven knowing. God's providence will not be thwarted. We must remember this as we face various trials in our own lives. It, it may be God's will that we contract a serious disease or that someone we love might die or that we might die. 
or, or perhaps someone we love persists in rebellion, God has decreed many heartaches in our lives. We're talking about this in Sunday school. That's uncomfortable language, isn't it? God has decreed many heartaches in our lives, and indeed, He causes those decrees to come to pass. This idea is frustrating to many because there's just no way God causes bad things to happen. That has to be the devil, or that has to be just permission, but not causation. But to me, again, as we mentioned in Sunday school, this idea is far more terrifying a prospect than the one we have on display in this passage, that God is in absolute control of every detail of life. The, the idea that God may not have his hands on the rain at any, any given moment is terrifying because he, then he would not be truly omniscient, omnipresent, or, or om, omnipotent. But God's providence is in fact comforting because it means in every detail, every event of life, there is a purpose. We may not know the purpose, we may not see the purpose, but there is a purpose. And that means that ultimately every circumstance is good. So the promises of God then stand out for us like a, like a beacon on the hill. And whatever comes to pass on our journey between here and there, uh, we know ultimately God will see us from here to there. No person, no obstacle will come in our way. It may be challenging, it may be painful or grueling, but we will get there in God's providence. We will obtain His promises. But then our fallen human heart says, Aha! Then I don't have to run anymore. It's going to come to pass. that I'm, I just can stop and wait for God. But we see in this story not only the providence of God, but we see the means by which that providence is fulfilled. First, we see it in his nephew, Paul's nephew, in verses 16 through 22. Paul's nephew here, he kind of saves the day. He must have kind of run in the right circles, maybe a zealot circles or something, and he hears about this plot, and he rushes to the fortress Antonia, and he tells Paul, and he gets sent to the tribune. And the tribune takes him by the hand, which is a warm gesture of, of welcome. And in, in that circumstance, perhaps Paul's whole ploy of waiting till he was spread for the for, for, for being flogged was still working in his favor. Um, also, it was common to let people visit imprisoned people in that time. But he's able to visit Paul. He goes to the tribune, and he tells him of the plot. And, and the tribune says, "Don't don't tell anybody about this." Now, if it's true that God is in absolute control, that Jesus told Paul, you're going to go to Rome, why didn't Paul just send his nephew on home? Why did he send him to the tribune? It's like, relax, nephew. Jesus told me I'd go to Rome, so so I'm okay. It's okay. Just head on home. But isn't that our attitude sometimes about the providence and promises of God? Uh, we don't really assume the world operates this way. We don't say, oh, if God wants me to be in shape, it'll happen in his good time. Or uh, my, my house needs a coat of paint. Just wait on the Lord. 
But with spiritual things, we do that sometimes, don't we? If the Lord wants to save that person, perhaps he'll bring a Christian into their life. I've heard people say things like, I I just want to be all in for Jesus, whatever that means, or I want to be on fire for Jesus. Okay, what are you doing about this? We're just waiting for the the Spirit to descend on us like, like a blazing flame of glory one morning while we're eating our cereal. Or are you attending faithfully to the means of grace? Are you spending time reading Scripture? Are you engaged with brothers and sisters who will encourage and challenge you? Or perhaps we're struggling with the sin. I want I want the Lord to to deliver me from this sin, bondage to this sin. Well, are you waiting for your desires to magically change? Or are you, as Peter says, making every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge? Are you are you cutting out the eye that makes you to sin and making no provision for the flesh? Or perhaps we're just hoping to be liberated while we continue to flirt with the fringes of the garment of sin. So Paul does not say to his nephew, Oh, God will guide me to Rome. God will take care of it. He says, There it is. Not a single of God's promises will fall to the ground. Praise the Lord. He brought this to your attention. Go, speak with the tribune. Calvin says here, let us call upon the name of the Lord cheerfully, even amidst the great threat, the threat of death. And yet let us not despise those helps which are offered. Otherwise, we shall be insulting to God in that we are not only moved with his promises, but also despise the means which he hath appointed for our deliverance. So, yes, cry out to God for help. Say, I'm not sufficient for this. Lord, help me. But then when it when, when the help arrives, do not despise the help. Lay hold of it and rest upon it. Paul's nephew here is not the only means of uh, salvation here, of God executing his providence. He also, and somewhat ironically, as, as Luke masterfully paints it here, he uses the Roman military to execute his plan. 25 through 23 through 35 we have this story so the tribune he sends Paul away to Caesarea in the night and, and Caesarea was actually where the provincial headquarters were for the governor of Judea at this time Felix um, so I would tend to think he'd be in Jerusalem but Caesarea was the, the headquarters and so they send him there by night with this complement of 470 armed soldiers 200 foot soldiers, 70 mounted soldiers, and 200 spearmen. Um, so the way was dangerous, especially at night. Robbers, zealots, and of course a, a plot against Paul's life. So, but still, the 470 men seems a bit extreme. They depart <coughs> Jerusalem at 9 p.m., the third hour of the night. They make it as far as Antipatris, which is a strategic city built by Herod about halfway, uh, 28 of 60 miles to Caesarea. Um, so if you think back, we've talked about this before, but about 20 miles per day is the standard rate of travel by foot. Um, so this is a 28-mile journey, but you can 
think about the Roman military was trained for this type of travel. So they were hoofing it pretty good to get to Antipatris by, by dawn, presumably here. Um, the following day, the foot troops return back to Jerusalem and the, the mounted soldiers continue with Paul to Caesarea. And I just picture here at this point as this, the Roman military is marching Paul out of Jerusalem. This, these 40 fasters are, are stewing among each other, stirring each other up. We may die, but it's worth it for the people of God. Then they hear, is that marching? They look and that's a lot of soldiers. That must be half the, is that Paul on a, on a horse? I don't know if they saw it or not, but you can just picture the deflation that they would have experienced. It's a striking image, I think, that the, the embarrassment to these Jews, that their plan against the Messiah's apostle from Luke's perspective is thwarted once again. And, and really by none other than a, a comically large troop of Roman soldiers. Roman soldiers, Paul mounted on a Roman horse, heading toward Rome ultimately. This is how Luke has Paul leaving Jerusalem for the last time in the book of Acts. I think this is one of those cases where a picture paints a thousand words. When Paul arrives in verse 34, Felix reads the letter sent by the tribune. And he asks this question, which initially I thought was was meant for him to decide, is Paul worth my time in trying this case? He says, where are you from? And actually, this is a procedural question, a jurisdiction question. Paul, uh, Felix could have sent Paul back to Cilicia. That was his home province. Try him there. But of course, that would have been inconvenient for the Jews who were coming down to accuse him. Uh, it would have made little sense. So he says, I'll, I'll try you here. And in this letter that he receives and reads, we, we see it's recorded for us in 26 through 30. Uh, we learn finally the tribune's name. He has a name, Claudius Lysias. Um, and as we saw, he had purchased his, his citizenship and the emperor Claudius was known to be liberal with allowing these kind of things to happen. So uh, as that happens, he took on the emperor Claudius's name for himself. So um, he is Claudius Lysias and he opens up with this, this uh, phrase, Excellent Felix. Um, and I think just it helps to notice the similarity of address here with the beginning of Acts. Oh, excellent Theophilus. Again, we see that, that Theophilus was probably some kind of upper statesman um, that would have received this type of, of address. Um, and it's almost humorous here the way Lysias recounts the events that unfolded with Paul. Um, it's kind of a loose approximation. He, he basically says, I, I saved this poor Roman citizen from being beat to death. They were going to kill him. I knew he was a Roman citizen, so I saved him. Which we know <laughs> behind the scenes is not what happened. We do glean a few important details from this letter. Um, first is that that Lysias... Claudius, Claudius Lysias does not know what the charge is. For all that's gone on, he still doesn't know what the charge is. He says in 28, in desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. 
And then second, he sees this charge as something to do with the Jewish law. He says in 29, I found that he was being accused about questions of their law. And then third, that he, neither he nor the Jewish council was able to charge him with anything deserving death or imprisonment. So again, Paul and his innocence is vindicated here. We might say at first glance that this is an unjust travesty which ha- that's happening to Paul, which it is. I mean, why don't they just let Paul go if there's nothing to, to hold him with? There's no charge. But again, the means that God uses by, by which he executes his providence is often somewhat unorthodox. In God's providence, Paul is beginning his westward journey toward Rome. And although the treatment he will face here is unjust, he's vindicated and proved beyond all shadow of doubt by Luke toward Theophilus and toward us that Paul is innocent. Not only that, but notice here the unique opportunities God is providing for Paul to preach the gospel. To preach the gospel to Gentiles, as he's been called to do. And and to people, a class of people, he would not have otherwise had access to. In verse 35, Felix commands Paul that Paul be guarded in Herod's praetorium, which is the palace in Caesarea. It's the palace that... Herod built for himself. That's where the governor lives in Caesarea. Felix lives there. And so he, Paul ends up being imprisoned at the Praetorium for two years. Which is extraordinarily convenient. This is God's providence that he's right there at Felix's doorstep. And then later Festus' doorstep and King Agrippa. He's in the mix because he's imprisoned at the Praetorium. In uh, Philippians 1, 12 through 14, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial or praetorian guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment for Christ is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Um, so some scholars have, based on this, believed that Philippians was written from Caesarea. I think the the dominant view is still that it was written from Rome, and it was a different imperial guard. Um, and really, this sermon has no dog in that fight. I tend to assume it was written from Rome. But either way, the effect is the same. You know Paul was going about preaching the gospel in the same manner whether he was in Caesarea or in Rome. And so it says, they all know I'm imprisoned for Christ. So Paul has access to the the Praetorian Guard, to all these people, to the governor's household in God's providence that he would not have otherwise had in what is an unjust situation. So again, as always in Acts, the attacks of the enemy only serve to to kick the coals of the gospel, to spread it farther and wider. And Christ is providentially building his church through his appointed means in his providence. 
So to bring it back around to where we started, if your life is not going according to plan, or at least your plan, know that it is unfolding according to a plan, a better plan. A plan that maximizes God's glory in the world beyond all shadow of doubt, which is the highest possible good. And so all the the the, the weirdness and the weariness and the, the pain and the confusion for all of that, you cannot ever live outside of God's decreed will. That's a great comfort. He has a purpose in it. He has a purpose in everything, even when we can't see it. So find that as a comfort. And so I'll just close with the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism, which indeed points us to that comfort. It asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer is that I am not my own but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life, and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Amen.